This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. We would expect to see some rather concerning numbers for a while. I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. We know how important it is for the parliament to meet. Isolation, testing. Being bored is much better than being in intensive care. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive, an afternoon briefing on the ABC News Channel. And I'm Frank Kelly from RM Breakfast and PK will be joined soon by Andrew Probin, who, of course, is the ABC's esteemed political editor. And he's going to talk about all the action in the federal parliament this week because our politicians are meeting regularly in Parliament House now, trying to make up for all those lost sitting weeks due to the pandemic. And the senators have been really busy in Senate estimates all week with a big focus on corruption, PK. Yeah, corruption has been at the centre of the kind of questioning. And we're going to get into that with Andrew Proben a little later, just the pressure now on the federal government for a, a sort of national anti-corruption commission delays and the sort of questioning from Labor about why they're delaying the way they are and why uh, they're using the pandemic to say that they can't prioritise it. So we'll get to that. But before we get to that, let's talk about the other big story this week in my own home state, which is the reopening of Victoria, the pace of that reopening Mm. and the frustrations around the pace (laughs) and what's been prioritised. Now, as we're recording this on a Thursday morning, uh, the case numbers have been low, but Thursday, the case number is five. There looks to be a potential outbreak. Um, Hopefully, contact traces are on top of it. It seems that people have been notified quicker than they have in the past. So let's not catastrophize, which is uh, sort of, I think some of us Melbournians do because we've been down this road before. But there is hope. It's been a good week, hasn't it? It's been zero. You've never had zero before. One, two, five. It's all in the realm of something hopefully exciting and liberating happening for you all this weekend. I love how you say it. Uh, Exciting (laughs) and liberating. (laughs) Woohoo! Yes. Well, to be frank, I mean, you you know, there were a few had high hopes for last Sunday and I think that all fell a bit flat because the newfound freedoms weren't that big. You know, you can go 25 kilometres, but you can't go, I don't know, to Ballarat. You can, you can go to the hairdresser, that's good. You can go to a real estate auction, that's good. But you can't go to a cafe, you can't go to a shop or many shops. It's Life is still nowhere near back to normal. That no. was a disappointment, wasn't it? People were disappointed. And then, of course, and you had some interesting stuff on your show on this. Then there was, of course, a big backlash from business, which was inevitable. And the federal government too, right? So mm. Josh Frydenberg, sort of criticising the state premier again. Sort of criticising. <laughs> All right, you go Palace there. disregard is what he accused the premier of, which was, you know, pretty hefty. Uh, hefty is exactly what it was. And then the premier in Victoria, Daniel Andrews, didn't hold back, right? He just, he went hard. He said he's not a leader. He's a liberal, which was a pretty cutting and very political line. He's mm. just a liberal. What does that imply? That he doesn't you know, care or, or it's also a very partisan remark. Yeah. So both of them played pretty hard on that. And the Premier kept repeating, I'm not holding back anymore. I'm going to call this out from now on. So it seems, you know, we've talked about it over weeks, but really gloves are fully off now. They've been thrown and everyone's uh, fighting to make their case. Uh, the, the Treasurer arguing, you know, this is ridiculous um, and you had Greg Hunt on your show on Thursday arguing, you know, now if you look at the national definition, this is actually a a, a good level of COVID cases in terms of justifying a reopening. 
The state government's still wanting to be cautious, though. So you're right, on Sunday, I don't know when people will listen to this podcast, but there will be further easing of restrictions. But there is a sense of trepidation around all of this. Uh, and this this case where there is, you know, the five-day, the five-cases mm. day will be a big test in terms of contact tracing and and being able to manage risk around COVID-19. But you spoke to Lindsay Fox. I want to talk about that interview, right? It's your interview, so I want you to talk about it. But I thought it was a fantastic interview just to hear that, that there isn't necessarily just one voice in business about the way that it's been managed in Victoria, yeah. right? Lindsay Fox, for those who don't know, he's a trucking tycoon. Let's call him that. He's got a major trucking and logistics company. It's called Lynn Fox. He's a, he's a senior Victorian, very embedded Melbourneian businessman who's been around a long time. In fact, he was around back after the recession in the 90s and he went on a travelling roadshow around, around Australia at that time with Simon Crean, who was the minister, the Labor minister at the time, and also Bill Kelty from the ACTU, the union movement, and they went out on a jobs roadshow, trying to create jobs, jobs, jobs. So he's been in this position before. He came out, he spoke to us on the same day that seven major CEOs from the Combank, from Orica, from West Farmers, big, big companies, big employers, um, released an open letter to the Premier of Victoria saying, you've got to open now. This is basically, the message was, this is beyond a joke. But on that very same day, I spoke to Lindsay Fox, and he had a different message. He said, look, forget, forget all this point scoring. It's getting a nowhere. We've got to be united. There is no, this this um, virus is insidious. And in his words, at least Dan Andrews had the balls to stay the course. You know, he set the course. He says, we're going to get through this. He took some tough decisions, which Lindsay Fox said he didn't agree with them all. Nevertheless, he agreed with the Premier taking the leadership and seeing it through. So a really different message there, which I think I, I could be wrong, PK, and the polls show that a lot of support um, has has gone away from Dan Andrews. But I do feel a lot of Melburnians in particular don't really like this continual piling on of the pressure from from business because they're feeling like they've got no choice but to get these numbers down. That was their only choice and they've done it and they're nearly there. So what are we doing? Having said that, there's a lot of Melbourne businesses who are saying we need to open. This is killing us another week and I might not be able to sustain my business any longer. I won't be there to open. So it's very it's very much crunch time, isn't it? It is. And there is. A, you're right about the, the first point you made in relation to we put so much effort in. When you've put that much effort in and everyone has collectively, in fact, I've never felt so much sort of city solidarity because we've all done this mm. and we feel like we only get each other. I know that sounds really weird, but it's kind of true. Like, well, it's been 100 days now, hasn't it? Only we understand what this looked like for us, right? Uh, there's a particular language we speak, even as parents from Melbourne, like we, we get, it's like, let's not talk of the war. You know, we know what happened. And how difficult that was just to keep life up, whether you're unemployed or trying to hold down a job and trying to also look after children. So there is that we're so close. But, you know, there's not one view in in Melbourne. You know, of course, it's a big city. Uh, There is the view from business that, yeah, we've done all the hard yards, but my God, we're about to hit the wall. And I think that's a legitimate view. I think it's a legitimate concern from business. Yeah, of course. So we need to kind of 
talk about that as you know as well, or, or that's a legitimate view, and that's what the federal government's trying to seize on. Look, there's been a few own goals from the state government too. This announcement they made that the Cox Plate could have their owners there. Um, you know, there was going to be sort of the first larger gathering at the Cox Plate this weekend. It was reversed Let's within hours. Let's unpack that a bit for for people who aren't from Melbourne. The Cox Plate's a big race meeting, horse racing in Melbourne Spring Carnival. So the Melbourne Cup is the sort of the pinnacle of that carnival. But if you've lived in Melbourne through the racing season, through the spring carnival, you know that it's normally a very fun time, isn't it, PK? It's a time of, you know, parties and just a sense of, oh, look, it's all happening Champagne in and hats. Yeah, That's exactly. very much. Exactly. And what happened was that suddenly at the last minute, the government said, oh, okay, 500 um, people, extra people can go to the races. If you own a horse or a connection of horse, then you can go socially distanced, but you can go well. That that really seemed to be the last straw for a lot of a lot of your PK. Oh, well, everyone lost it. Everyone was like, "Are you kidding?" Uh, you know, I couldn't even go. I couldn't even have a proper funeral for my for my grandmother. I mean, that this is the sort of response the government got. Literally, it was the quickest backflip I've seen for some time. <laughs> Within literally, I think it was four hours. The minister Martin Bakula tweets, oh, "It's gone. It's finished." The next day, the premier's like, "Yes, I was part of that decision." It was wrong. Uh, and so they argue that it got sort of COVID-safe approval, it got health approval, but it clearly didn't read the room, the Melbourne mm. room, the state room, well, because it preferenced horse racing over everyone else. Well, yeah, including over the footy right now. What is the other religion of Melburnians? It is the footy. Bad enough the grand final is going to be played up in Brisbane, shock horror. Um, but the, the the Premier all week in the strongest of terms, terms has said you can't have a footy party. You can't have people over to watch the footy. You can't go out to watch the footy. They're even going to have police drones in the air making sure people and having footy parties. So you can't go and have a footy party with your mates, your friends, your family, whoever, but you were going to be able to go to the races? Uh-uh. Yeah, well, the owners. I mean, it was a bit more, it was a little more qualified, but yes, uh, it did demonstrate that. And the footy question has been a big, big one that the Premier's been addressing every day because it is, as you say, such an important event, particularly in Melbourne. In fact, on Friday, there's going to be actually a public holiday in Melbourne, <laughs> as there is for the grand final. The grand final is going to be in Brisbane at night time, which also kind of alarms me. Anyway, I've got to get over that. It's just weird for us. Uh, it's an afternoon thing. Thank you. Please I take agree. it back to the afternoon. Do not like that. But okay, so it's it's going to be at night time in another city. At least they're two Victorian teams. I've certainly got my Victorian jumper on today, don't I? But um, it's all a bit odd. I understand why they've made this decision, right? It is a super spreader sort of potential event. We know it is. <laughs> People drink always. When you get drunk, you get a little loose with your hands. Uh, you get a little loose with, I don't know, if you've, you're touching the germ killer quite as much. So I understand why they've made this call, but it is a really complicated one emotionally for many people. Okay, and talk about complications. Another story that's been happening there in Victoria in the context of all this is pressure building on Brett Sutton. Now, Brett Sutton, if you haven't caught him yet, I don't know how. He's the Victorian Chief Health Officer. He has had quite a fan club through this pandemic. Really, I think, one of the trusted faces for Melbournians. But he's come under a lot of pressure over the hotel quarantine inquiry. Yes, he certainly has. I mean, he originally said he first learnt of the plan to use private security in hotel quarantine through the media. Uh, 
but it's since been revealed that he'd authorised a response uh, to the federal government in March. It said that Victoria would rely on private security at, at quarantine hotels. Now, another health department email has placed Professor Sutton at the, basically at the top of a strict chain of command for the quarantine system. He is under enormous pressure. Uh, and again, uh, all eyes on that quarantine, um, hotel quarantine system. We still, I still don't feel like we have, well, we don't have the final report. We don't have all the answers. Mm. I will say this, though. I do wonder why we didn't have a, a wider look uh, at uh, not just the hotel quarantining debacle, and it was, but also contact tracing the broader failures. I think the failures have been bigger than yeah. just that moment. It's been about, and that goes back to the pace, friend, of opening up. Probably could have opened up faster, um, no doubt, if our contact tracing was better. Do you think it reveals, I know there's been a bit of commentary around this week, but no one really providing any proof that I can see, but does this slowness to open up and, you know, the Premier says, look, we'll do it when when the health officials tell us it's all in order, you know, you've got to do this in order, step by step. Do you think it does reveal a lack of confidence on the part of the government, the political masters, if not the, uh, the health experts, on Victoria's contact case tracing capacity still? I mean, it's, we're told it's come a long way. They've employed hundreds and hundreds more people. They've gone to New South Wales to get the latest tips from there because the New South Wales one is the gold standard, the, the Prime Minister keeps telling us. Do you think they've still got doubt in their capacity to do the, the contact tracing? There's a nervousness, but they say they think now it's up to scratch. And right now is its biggest test. Right now, over the next couple of days, depending on when you listen to this podcast, it will be under its most its most intense pressure and, and test. And, oh, I think hopefully all of us are praying and hoping, you might not be a praying person, sorry, but whatever you do, that it does work because it has massive implications, not just for Victorians, but for our country opening mm. up and becoming sort of a COVID-safe country, a COVID-free country well, where that we is have free it. movement. That, that's true, isn't it? Because beyond this, let's assume Victoria's going to open up. Then we need as a nation to try and work out how to live with this because we all look at Europe and see what's happening there. Stage two, you know, Spain, a million people now have contracted the virus in Spain. In Britain, you know, thousands every day are contracting the virus again. It's it's out of hand in quite a few places. We need to work out a way to manage and live with this. And key to that, we keep being told, apart from all of us social isolating, washing our hands, wearing masks, is testing and tracing. So if we don't get this right in one state, one territory, one city, you know, then suddenly we've all got a bit of a problem. That's absolutely right. Let's bring in our guest. Let's bring in our guest, ABC political editor Andrew Proben. Welcome to the party room. Oh, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me again. Hey, Andrew, Senate estimates, it's always, well, it it's, has its highs and lows, let's say that. If you have to watch it all day and report on it, it's not that great. It can get a bit boring, but it has unearthed some interesting and important facts this week, um, particularly around the government's purchase of the Leppington Triangle for 10 times what it was worth. That's been really front and centre, and it sounded like this. What it looks like is people tried to cover it up when the audit office came asking questions. I want to get to the bottom of what happened, which is why I've pulled in an independent auditor of my own so that I can get to the bottom of the facts. I'm trying to clean it up. That was the Secretary of the Infrastructure Department being grilled by Penny Wong. What did we learn this week in estimates? Did we get much more, any clearer idea of how on earth a federal government department managed to pay $30 million for a property of land that a year later is worth $3 million. 
Well, we didn't learn uh, too much more, but we the interesting stuff came from the audit office, which has already uh, triggered uh, the police investigation. It's already its work has already triggered three investigations by the infrastructure department. But there are a few little little bits in the inquisition earlier this week. That was Monday night. The infrastructure. Um, department uh, gave its evidence. Then the the, the auditor, auditor general was talking about it and said that uh, that the valuation was done using drive-by techniques as opposed to actual visit. Um, the, the fact that there were so many uh, peculiar aspects of the purchase that they decided even before the release of the ANAO report that the Auditor General would just go straight to the federal police. Now, that's not happened uh, in the past 20 years. It might never have happened. In fact, uh, the Auditor General, Grant uh, Hare, actually said that he'd called the AFP Commissioner and neither could work out what the the proper protocols would be for this but uh, these conversations ended up to uh, in, into uh, ended up being a, a referral from direct from the auditor general to the AFP before anything was known publicly okay so we've got the federal police uh, letting us know that they're investigating this deal but we haven't got anywhere close to uh, learning that there's been federal political um, misappropriation or mal- malconduct going on here have we it's not it's not got close to any federal politician yet has it but it looks like it's somewhere in the uh, lower levels of, of the public service, uh, at levels that were below the actual decision makers. So some of these meetings that were in coffee, uh, coffee clubs and coffee bars that were that preceded the actual purchase. So that's some of the conduct and behaviour that's being investigated by the, the federal police and also by by the department itself. There's clearly. Um, you know, something's gone horribly awry, um, notwithstanding the fact that um, there was quite a lot of pressure on the government securing land for mm. this project, which has been long on the planning board, but um, very slow to actually get up. Um, but the, one of the weird aspects of this this particular parcel of land is that it, it once was bought by uh, the federal government and then sold back. Is that right? And now it's been bought again mm. because Badgerys Creek has been the the next uh, you know, airport yeah, in Sydney right. for, yeah. for decades. On and off, on and off for a long time. Yeah. Wow, I wonder yeah. what they paid originally and got sold it for originally. Yeah, uh, I don't know. <laughs> now this is really renewed pressure, right, on the government over uh, the establishment of a federal anti-corruption body and that became, I think, probably the strongest political theme of the week. Labor certainly zeroed in on it. And then we learned that legislation has been sitting on the Attorney-General's desk for almost a year. Here's the Prime Minister's response. I was not going to have one public servant diverted from the task of focusing on our members on my approach left. to dealing with this pandemic, Mr Speaker, as the Leader of the Opposition would suggest. So, Probes, essentially the government's argument has been we just put everything into the pandemic. That's our job. And I think uh, they're hoping that the public goes, of course, that's what we want you to do, you know, deal with the health emergency and the unemployment crisis. That's been their defence. Is it believable? Well, 
multitasking is almost the definition of government because no matter what crisis you're going through, multiple things have to be done. And it could be argued that in a period where money is going to be exceptionally tight and uh, and yet money has got to go out the door really, really quickly, as we've seen with JobKeeper, with JobSeeker, all these stimulus programs and, and uh, worker support, that it's times like that that you have to have integrity measures mm. at the most uh, sharp. And I would have thought that even with the pandemic, given that the exposure draft was was completed December last year and the pandemic really didn't hit the public conscience, uh, conscious, uh, the public conscience until maybe late February, March, then there was ample time for at least the next step to be had and that was release of the exposure draft. One of the aspects of this is that Christian Porter, a West Australian who's who as a, as a, a state attorney general back in WA had exposure to the Crime and Corruption Commission there and its Star Chamber aspects, he's very, very conscious of what to avoid. He doesn't want uh, 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 the super secret triple C that you've got in WA, nor does he want the the public show trials that ICAC has been accused of being in New South Wales over the year. He's trying to um, hit the sweet spot. And it's the it's the design that's always going to be in contest because Labor supports a sort of ICAC-style integrity commission, but it's quite clear that the that the Attorney General Christian Porter is not supportive of of that position. I think you know it, both sides have got um, have got reasons to argue virtue of, of their model. Yeah, but uh, there's no virtue in inaction, is there? I mean, I think the public no, after very little, sports Fran. rorts after you know the scene what's going on in New South Wales lately and this land deal. I think people are, are really sick of it. I've been getting this on my program for a couple of years now. People calling for this. They really think over the last few years that a lot of politicians are in there for themselves. They just there's not this trust. And I mean, Helen Haynes, the independent member for Indi, she's got a she's got a proposal. She's got a model um, that's been, you know, put together with the, by a lot of very smart people, a lot of former judges, former ICAC commissioners, people like that. Now, the government doesn't like elements of it, but she's going to try and table that or she will mm. introduce that, I think, on on uh, early next week. We're recording this on Thursday. Um, the government might not like it, but why wouldn't they just at least let that pass that model for uh, to have work done on it. So they've got a model that they're actually working on because I think just to well, say got, nothing yeah. and to vote against mm. it is not going to fly. Well, I, I think uh, there is a clamour for mm. there to be a central body that does have over, overarching uh, responsibilities and the ability to probe where it sees fit. Now, under the, the model that um, uh, Christian Porter's looking at, there would be two divisions and... It's only in the law enforcement division as opposed to the public sector provision uh, division that there would be a discretion to have public hearings. So if it's, there's anything to do with public sector corruption, we wouldn't hear about it mm. until it lands in the courts. Um, now, that's very different to, say, the ICAC model. It's more similar to the Triple C uh, model in WA where... You don't really know what's going on. In fact, uh, it's illegal for anyone to reveal, even if they have been brought before the the Triple C 
So uh, the, the the contest, of course, on the model, but the government's trying to kind of say, well, you know, we've got to do consultation, we don't want to get it wrong, all of that, right? That's the argument. They also won't commit to the timeline, Andrew Proben. Um, so they, you know, pretty much won't happen this year. But even even this term... Even is next what, year's doubtful, That's isn't what I'm it? saying. I mean, this yeah. term is what they're saying. Can they keep arguing that realistically? I mean, they're going to get away with that given the point that Fran makes, which I think is very true, that this idea that it's not a priority. I don't know. If people do think that ta- wasting or, or exploiting taxpayer money is a priority. The fact is, though, this has been this was promised two years ago. It hasn't been delivered. We could have an election next year, even though the Prime Minister is saying the election is more likely to be 2022. I think they have to have get a wriggle on because that's the nature of the of the political contest now, just sheer politics and the grubby nature of things that are being exposed almost routinely. I mean, there's another story um, that's just emerged about Border Force now being subject of a corruption probe. This sort of stuff we only hear about because it's being leaked. Um, and that body that's uh, investigating that uh, that particular allegation of corruption is uh, is called ACLI. Um, that looks at all of the law enforcement agencies from Border Force through AFP and so on. But again, what happens before ACLI is, is kept... Um, uh, very private, and that's the body that would f- that would form the basis of one half of the new integrity commission. Okay, you mentioned that uh, Scott Morrison uh, said, well, he told his party room that he wants to go full term. He's a full termer, he said. But let's really, you know, prime ministers <laughs> go when they think they're going to win, don't they? I mean, you know, should we really believe that he's going to go the full term probes? It's hardly, it's not quite a commitment, is it? Ooh, yeah, look, it's it's this is a tricky one, isn't it? He, 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 I think he's been living recent weeks and months with the grand expectation, partly because of the uh, the October six budget that next year would be an election year. Now, I, I mentioned the October six budget because it wasn't the grand reform uh, budget that they had hoped it would be. So there's more expectation that the next year's budget will have some of those reforms. Now, if you're going to have a reform budget in an election year, then it's pretty difficult. But if you have uh, a a reform budget and then you're already signalling beforehand that the election will be the following year, well, that might be a bit easier. Um, That said, uh, as you were saying, PK, a leader will go when he thinks he can win. And what would be the argument he puts if he does take us to the polls back in, uh, in, in say, from August next year onwards, he would go to the polls and say, OK, pandemic's under con- control. Uh, hopefully we've got a, a, a Hopefully he can say that. <laughs> Let's, fingers crossed, we've got a vaccine. But we're in the post-pandemic phase. This is going to be a, a long haul out of this. I've got a five-year economic plan. This is my plan or his plan pointing at, at Albanese. So that's the, that, that's the kind of game plan you could expect and uh, sort of the game plan that I was expecting, I, m- I must admit, uh, up until this week where he, he certainly said that he's a, he's a full-termer. Is he telling the truth? 
uh, well, he's telling the truth um, on of, that day. Yeah, that's but, right. you know, circumstances change, PK. Yes. Friend. Now, <laughs> circumstances right. have changed and I've... Governments are required to respond to circumstances, That's, it, that's what they do. And I'm responding to the circumstance where I'm going to say goodbye to you, Andrew Proben, because you've got a busy day ahead. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, guys. Pleasure. Thanks, Probes. Well, before we go, the bells are ringing. It's question time. Yes, and we've got this one from Genevieve. Uh, She says, hi, Fran and PK. Can you explain why it is the custom for ministers and high-profile bureaucrats to resign when they stuff up? Setting aside issues of corruption, why is it a good idea that a mistake is always followed by resignation? In most jobs, making mistakes is an important part of learning and how you get better and improve at your job. Seems like a huge waste of resources and talent. Thanks, Genevieve. That's actually quite an interesting question. It is interesting. And I think, you know, you could say there's mistakes and then there's mistakes. And there's also a sense of public accountability. And in the um, Westminster system, the notion that the buck stops with the, the minister or in the case of the public service, I suppose, the departmental secretary. Um, but I think, look, to some degree, and in some cases, you're right, Genevieve, and I think we've seen this through the pandemic, when the Ruby Princess debacle happened with such deadly consequences. Through a number of inquiries, we found out that the mistake was made by a committee of Department of Health officials. Uh, To my knowledge, they haven't been sacked. And we certainly have Kerry Chant, who's the chief medical officer in New South Wales, is still standing and doing an incredible job. And I think the, the equation then was, this is not the time to dismantle our health expert advisory panels because we need them all. And you could say the same about some of the issues in Victoria, though we did see the health minister have to resign over some kind of anomaly when it became clear that the premier clearly didn't have complete confidence in her. It, it, going way back, I mean, I remember a long time ago when there were some major, major problems in the Federal Department of Immigration. Um, you might remember the Cornelia Rao, mm. um, the Australian citizen who was locked up in detention for a long time. It was a complete mess and there was a couple of them in a row. And Amanda Vanstone was the minister under pressure to go. And she, that was the first time I remember her saying, my job is not to go when the heat comes on. My job is to go into that kitchen and fix things, is to take the heat and get the job done. That's my job to fix this. That's the first time I remember that line and that switch of response. But now I, it, perhaps it, it's, it's not that uncommon. You know, people yeah. don't go all the time, but sometimes they should go. Sometimes. If there's, been, if there's been, you know, misappropriation or there's been maladministration at a serious level, then I think the ultimate price it, it should be paid. Yeah, that's right. So there's a difference between corruption and, and actually intent to do the wrong thing. And then there's incompetence, right? Yeah. <laughs> I just wasn't watching. Oops, I didn't know that was going on. I, I didn't, you know, have an eye on it. Uh, I think they're both bad, to be honest. I think incompetence is bad if you're in a senior role. Uh, and we've heard Dan Andrews using that defence. I'm not going to walk out now when there's a problem. Uh, you know, that when he's been asked yeah. to resign, he, that's been his line, right? Like, I'm not going to pull out now. Look, I think it's a mixed story. And it makes sense, though, at certain times, don't you think? I think you should stay and clean things up if you've actually created the mess. Like, if you've smashed up the kitchen, you fix it up. Like, I do think there is a sense there. But then it goes back to do people trust that you can? 
because, of course, these are democratic roles. And then that's a bigger question because sometimes they don't. Sometimes Mm. they need you gone because they think, no, 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 we don't think you're capable. So, you know, I don't think there's a blanket rule, but it's an an interesting question in relation to accountability. Yeah. Thanks, Genevieve. Thank you very much. And, of course, you can send us your questions um, wherever you like. You can email us. You can tweet us. Wherever you like. like. (laughs) Wherever you like. Wherever you see. Wherever you see me, just send me a question. All right, that's it for the party room this week. But we wanted to give you a heads up on an RN podcast that we are pretty excited about right now. Yeah, I've t- I mentioned this one to you before. It's This Working Life, hosted by Lisa Leong, and it's all about work and life, funnily enough, but mostly about work. Uh, there's a ton of expert help letting you in on the ideas that work to get your work life into gear. Yeah, and it's funny too. It's the kind of the digital water cooler of work life, but without... Well, some of those annoying colleagues, to be fair. You can find This Working Life wherever you normally get your podcasts. That's it from us. See you, Fran. See you, PK. My name's Steve Austin. I'm here with Matthew Wordsworth. Hello, Steve. Matt and I each week are doing a podcast, particularly for people in Queensland, called Matters of State, where we look at everything involving the politics of the pandemic. The campaign, the opposition, the hidden issues, the fun bits, the light bits, the heavy bits, the important bits. I love giving people a hard time, basically. (laughs) The Matters of State podcast. Sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong. Go to ABC News Online, the ABC Listen app, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.